0: Before Mrs. Bentley burst out with, Well, ma'am, is it another case? That's what it looks like. Praise be! I'll get your good black silk out of the press. Yes, Mary, if you would. And you'll be staying at Mr. Tyson's for dinner, Mrs. Bentley said, so we can keep the rabbit pudding for tomorrow. Don't be silly. What will you eat? I'll toast the rest of the bread and cheese. There's more than enough for one. She scattered white pepper and salt over her bowl of meat and vegetables. I wonder what it'll be this time. So do I, but Mr. Tyson didn't give any details, and it's pointless to speculate. The money will be handy, that's for certain. We'd never have managed till next quarter day on what you've got left. The Bradshaw business was months ago, and you didn't take enough for it. Oh, that was light work. All I needed to do in the end was intercept a couple of letters. The previous spring, I had uncovered the younger Bradshaw daughter's plan to elope with her dancing master. My work could be described as the management and prevention of scandal. My brother used to enjoy making up facetious advertisements for my services, blushes spared, and broken commandments mended. Anyway, that was dull as ditch water, Mrs. Bentley said. Let's hope the sins are bigger this time. Mary! I'm not wishing for any more sin in the world, ma'am, but there's never a shortage, so why shouldn't some of it come our way? You're too charitable, that's your trouble, and too bloomin refined to ask for more money, when folks certainly ain't too refined to cheat you. Over-familiarity is, of course, a dreadful quality in a servant. This was one of the first principles I had to get into the heads of the girls I used to train up for domestic work. You'll never rise out of the scullery if you take that tone as I told them, you'll be turning a mangle until doomsday. But Mary Bentley was more than a servant to me. Mary Bentley was a friend I trusted with my life, and she had an endless fund of the plainest common sense. Her shrewd eye for human falsity had been invaluable in all my cases. I had been living with her in this narrow, sooty, inconvenient house in Hampstead for more than two years— On the day that I came to look at the place, my husband had just died, and our house in Bloomsbury had been broken up and sold. I had been looking for a small place near my brother in Highgate, but there was nothing suitable in Highgate that I could afford. Fred couldn't help me, his wife's lavish housekeeping ate his income up to the very limit, and I had come to Hampstead because it was busier than its sleepy neighbour, with cheaper lodgings to be had. Well Walk was a bustling, workaday street, and Mrs. Bentley's house was practically next door to a tavern. I didn't see how I could possibly live in this shabby little terrace, with carts and drays rumbling past all day. I had done my best to put a good face on things, and I really don't think pride is one of my besetting sins, but at that moment, on that damp February morning, I felt how far I had fallen. "'Matt would have been so sad to see me. "'I had been as brave as everyone expected me to be. "'But there were times when my longing for him "'and my sense of how solitary I was without him "'pierced me like a knife. "'The door of this unpromising house "'was opened by a small spare old woman. "'At first glance I took her to be ancient. "'The thin frizz of hair underneath her cap was snow-white. "'Her brows and lashes were white.' "'and her pale eyes held only the washed-out memory of blue. "'But she was wiry and vigorous, "'and simply pale in the way that very fair-skinned people and white mice are pale. "'Once upon a time, as she told me later, her hair had been flaming red. "'Her five sons and her tribe of grandchildren were all red-headed. "'She had scattered ginger across every North London village "'from Golders Green to Kentish Town.' Mrs. Bentley was talkative, and while I was examining the fireplace in the front parlour, she told me that she had once, many years before, led rooms to the poet John Keats. I was off my guard, aching for the lost half of my soul, and a great tenderness and sorrow came over me. Matt had a fondness for poetry that I often told him was unsuitable in an archdeacon. I was only teasing— It was our shared weakness for poetry that drew us together in the first place. I saw myself as I had been at twenty-two, dreaming my way through the long summer days of our engagement, reading Matt's letters that bristled with